We have um, two passages to read here this morning, 2 Timothy 3 and also from Psalm 119. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. This is the word, word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word, that we might know you and that, you, that we might know how to live here on, on this earth. Father, we pray now for Bob, that you would um, be with him this morning, that you would speak through him, and that we would open our hearts to listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Well, I have to tell you, filling in is not new for me. I've done it on various occasions. I was thinking in particular of a time about three or four years ago when it was the beginning of Thanksgiving week, and I had already been thinking about how the Sunday would go. I wasn't preaching then necessarily, but I was thinking about the coming Sunday and Thanksgiving, and the phone rang, and it was Colin McDougall in uh, Kenya. And he said, uh, I have something to ask you. We have a missionary conference scheduled with several hundred missionaries, and a number of them are already on their way. So we can't really cancel, but the speaker walked into a plate glass window and can't fly. So I'm going to call you back in 40 minutes, and you tell me whether you will come and speak at the conference. So uh, filling in is something I have done, and it does quicken your pulse a little bit at times. But, I, you know, over the years, and especially in recent days, I've been thinking a lot about the sufficiency of Scripture, and, and that's why this is kind of a passion of mine, and I, I'm actually eager to, to talk about it. In days gone by, they had what they called the battle for the Bible, and it usually centered about the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. I don't see that as being the primary issue amongst evangelicals. Of course, without outside the camp, there may well be those who would question the inspiration and accuracy and authority of Scripture. But within evangelicalism, I see the, the struggle as, is the Bible sufficient for my needs? And so I've heard statements made like, um, 
Well, the, the Bible doesn't tell us how to mend a broken bone. That's true. But I, I would like to suggest to you it does have a lot of implications, medically and otherwise. You wouldn't remember most of you, Charles Howard, who was one of the finest surgeons I've ever known. He worked on all of us at one time or another. But he would say this, I'm not really the healer. God is the healer. And what I try to do is figure out what he's doing and just be a part of it. See, that's a way different mindset than the God complex, which says, I'm really the one who's in control of this. Huge difference. And it has implications for all kinds of areas that many of us are tempted to say, well, the Bible doesn't really speak to that. I, I really think it does. I think our problem is our view of the sufficiency of Scripture and the implications of that. So that's really what I'd, what I'd like to talk to you about. I think today there are two major areas of departure within what I would call evangelicalism. That is, people who really say they trust in Christ and do and believe in the Bible. Here are the two major areas. One is in the way in which they have allowed our culture and, and even sometimes our scholarship to undermine the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture in areas where it speaks directly and immediately to a point. And uh, I'm, I'm going to take you to, uh, to 1 Corinthians in a minute. But when you look at a text like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired, inspired by God and profitable and it has all these things then that are the outflow of the profitability of Scripture. Underline the word all. My friends, that means Deuteronomy. <laughs> it means Leviticus. It means all Scripture is inspired of God and all Scripture is profitable to us. So we have to be very careful. In our minds, I think we've made the Old Testament the blue laws. Are, are any of you old enough to know what I mean. The blue laws, you know, don't spit on the sidewalk, clean up after your horse in the street, those kind of things where you say, that, that isn't relevant to today. We tend to look at the Old Testament and say to ourselves, yeah, the Old Testament, so let's just put all of that away. And, and I, I have troubles with that. So look at, at 1 Corinthians, for example, where Paul has some very specific instructions. And, and for those who say, well, oh, this is Corinth, and in, one, in some cases, well, this is the Corinthian women. They had some unique problem, and it only relates to them, not to us. Let me first point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is talking about sex and marriage, and, and Paul makes a very clear distinction between what is his opinion and his conviction and what is the command of God. Very clear. Paul is a man of integrity, and if it's his personal opinion, he'll tell you that. And he won't bind you to obey what's his personal opinion. If it is the command of God, he will. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians, but he adds something very important in verse 2. He says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, 
to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who are in every place. Is 1 Corinthians written only to Corinthians? No. It's written to believers everywhere. Chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to you, and he's going to tell you not only what I teach, but what I practice in every church. There's no variation from one church to another. It's the same teaching and application. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. He says, and this is the rule that I have for all the churches. Unless somebody would say, well, yeah, that was that's true. No, Paul says, all the churches. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16. He says, if anybody wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. Wow, that sounds a little restrictive, doesn't it? does to me. Chapter 14 and verse 33, as in all the churches, and then he goes on to talk about that, and here's the significant thing. He says, if anyone thinks of himself as a prophet and thinks that he has authority, if he disagrees on this point, don't listen to him. He has no authority. If he sets this aside, he basically sets all scripture aside. There is no authority for those who deny what Paul has taught. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, as I directed the churches in Galatia, you do as well. Not one church somehow accepting from the others. And here's a beautiful one, Colossians 4, 16. Make sure that you read this and you also make it available to the Laodiceans. So what Paul writes to one church, he writes to all churches. And anytime we start taking what Paul has said specifically about a situation and saying, well, that, that doesn't apply today, it doesn't apply to this church or that church, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. All truth, as I believe it, all truth is universally true. No matter what time in history it is, no matter what culture it is, Truth is truth, and it's universal. And if we start buffering it off in some other category, I think we're in trouble. Okay, I, I don't want to really focus on the denial of what Scripture clearly says. That may sound funny. But I think the, one of the weak spots is how we deny the authority of Scripture in areas where we perceive that it doesn't speak to us directly. And, and I'm going to do this by trying to contrast what I call a legalistic handling of Scripture and, and an accurate handling of Scripture, legalism is narrow, and, and a biblical view of Scripture is broad. That's why, I don't know if you remember this, Dave, but, but in, in, uh, in, in seminary, I took a course called Paul's Use of the Old Testament. And one of the things you discover is it isn't always simple the way in which the New Testament writers, or even Jesus, use the Old Testament. We expect them to say, well, this is going to happen, and then in the New Testament, that did happen. <laughs> but you have at the birth of Jesus, out of Egypt, I've called my son. He's, what, what, where did that come from? Or Paul in Galatians saying, I'm going to use this analogy about Abraham's two wives. Some things are analogous, and we learn from those analogies. Some things are examples or illustrations, and we learn from that. Not everything is Old Testament 
prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. It's that, but it's not only that. So there's this whole broad way in which the New Testament uses the Old. Legalism does not broaden our view of Scripture. It narrows it. And it basically wants to make it so narrow that it has no application. In other words, you could be in control of it. One of our children comes along and says, I want to go over and play with Sarah. No, you may not go over and play with Sarah. So she goes over and plays with Sarah's sister. Because that wasn't specifically what she was told. Follow? Now, when you look at, at the Jewish handling of Scripture, you'll see this, this uh, I should say this Jewish legalistic handling of Scripture, you see this narrowing down to where it doesn't apply to anybody uh, because you can simply explain it away. I love this text in Luke chapter 13. This is, uh, there are all kinds of examples of this because the, the, the Jewish religious leadership was really after Jesus uh, in, in terms of the Sabbath. If there was one huge issue, it was Jesus was breaking the rules, right? He was breaking that Sabbath rule. So here's this case in Luke, and it says he was at verse 10 of chapter 13. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Here's the key verse, 14. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. So it's like saying, we've got office hours here and, uh, and you got healed when the office was closed. Sabbath law. And Jesus basically said, wait, 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 wait a minute. Isn't there something in the Old Testament about mercy? God delights in mercy and not sacrifice, that he is a God of compassion. Shouldn't this woman who's been bound for 18 years, can't you give her a break and let her be healed on the Sabbath? Is the law meant to keep a woman from healing? Think about the other examples because the Sabbath is a big one. Here's one answer of Jesus to the, to the legalists. Hypocrites, which one of you has a donkey that needs to be watered on the Sabbath and doesn't do it? work. Which one of you has an ox in the ditch on the Sabbath and doesn't pull it out? See, you're picky about the lady with the bent over back, but you can make exceptions for yourself all day long. David, he says of David, don't you remember that David ate of the sacred bread that he wasn't supposed to eat? Now, Jesus sent people away to think about what he said. Why was, what, was, what was important about David breaking the rules? Well, you could say he was hungry. I think the answer is you don't fault David because he was David. <laughs> if David wants to break the rules, he's the king. If that's true and Jesus is the king of kings, then should we be telling Jesus 
that he's breaking the rules because of who he is? Well, anyway, let's go on. Then you have the priests, and, and, and Jesus says, hey, you know that there are people who work on the Sabbath. The priests do, and, and, and they're not condemned. Why? Because it's their job. Maybe the, the ultimate one that I love is John chapter 5, another healing on the Sabbath. Jesus says, um, my father is at work, and so am I. Ooh, that one really set off a bomb, didn't it? Because now Jesus has claimed to be God. But his point is, shouldn't we be imitating God in what he does? And if God's working on the Sabbath, friend, grab a shovel. Let's get to work. So there's some of the ways. Now, it gets worse, if you can believe it. This is a downhill slope, legalism is. It finally gets to the point where not only do you adhere to the rules so rigidly that you lose sight of the overall principles. By the way, we're in Matthew 23 there. Gnats and camels. He says, you strain away the gnats, but you miss the camels. The camels are the guiding, governing principles which regulate the rules. And, and, and so if you understand that God is about mercy and compassion, then you understand there's no problem with healing a lady on the Sabbath. That's what the, the, the principle is all about. It helps us with the rule. Anyway, so you get to uh, Mark chapter 4, and, and you see this thing where now it's not the, the, the Jewish legalists uh, legalistically interpreting the law. It's them having a, a self-drawn-up uh, cultural regulation which justifies setting aside Scripture. We're talking about Corban. So here's the command. Honor your father and your mother. Well, that has all kinds of implications, right? But they got around it by saying, we have this principle called Corban. And Corban means that I have devoted this to God, and because I've devoted it to God, I can't use it for other, other menial purposes being interpreted in application. Sorry, mom and pop. I put all my savings in a Corban account. And because of that, I have to be faithful and obedient to that account, and I can't help you. Sorry. Now what they've done is taken their tradition, not the law, they've taken their tradition, and they've made that superior to the law and its governing principles, and now that's the basis for, for disobedience. What I'm saying is legalism sounds spiritual because it sounds like you're intent on keeping the rules down to the, the, the little nits. But the reality is it's narrowing the focus and the bandwidth of the law down so fine that you don't have anything left to obey. And that way you be in control. By the way, there's all kinds of things about legalism. Here's the other one. Legalism is opposed to faith. Now, we're in the process, some of you know, we're up working on my mom's estate, and you got all these legal forms that you have to fill out, all this stuff you sign. If there's any lawyers here, don't take offense. But, but, but the point is, the reason you have all that nitpicky stuff 
is because somebody has broken the rule in this way and that way, and so you keep adding to it. Oh, and by the way, if this should happen, and you write that down, we're in a society that is legalistic to the core, and we think the solution to our problem is one more law. Friends, it just isn't. The solution is far deeper than that, but legalism wants a reductionism that says this is so fine now I'm in control and ultimately what it says is I have to have God on a contract because I can't really trust him if I leave him on his own legalism says now I know if I do this I get that but you see God doesn't work with this that way and so we operate on a different principle and that means I got to trust him I don't know what he's doing I got to trust him because he is worthy of my trust. Okay, so there's this problem of legalism. One, you take things that are clear and you say they don't apply. The other is you say there is no reference to this because we don't see it directly stated. Both are wrong. Now, look at that that in light of the scriptures that, that Paul read for us. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired and profitable. All Scripture is inspired and profitable. That means the Old Testament cannot be torn out. You know, I I used to joke about having a scratch and sniff Bible, you know, where you could scratch and you'd smell the animals or whatever it was that was going on. But you can't have a tear-out-the-page Bible either. Oh, I don't like this. So, so I'm just going to set that aside. I heard Francis Chan speaking to the students at Azusa Pacific. And he said to them, I think you're so influenced by your culture, you've forgotten what Scripture says. And he said, let me ask you a question. What is there in the Scripture right now that you don't like? Well, friends, if you're living in the same flesh I am, there's a batch of stuff in the scriptures that I don't like, the test is whether I trust God and obey or whether I set it aside. And and, and so you've got scripture that is absolutely committed to meeting uh, all of our needs, all scripture, including the Old Testament. Now you go to to the the Old Testament, Psalm 19, uh, verses 7 through 11, and then Psalm 119, uh, 97 and following. How is it if the scriptures are to be so narrowly interpreted, how is it that David and the psalmist spend so much time thinking about it? In fact, when you look at the words, statutes and ordinances and whatever, it seems to me that even within the law, there's the different flavors of it that that we have to understand. And, And so... Why is David saying, I I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about the Scriptures? I wake up in the morning thinking about the Scriptures. What's to think about if the Scriptures are irrelevant to us? I think what he's saying is the breadth of the application of Scripture is so great and so wide, you can spend all your time thinking about it and never run out of gas. I'm going to go you one further heaven. My thought is that heaven is not one huge dump where you get in the pearly gates and the dump truck of knowledge 
drops all over us, and now we've got the whole story. I think heaven is the ongoing progressive revelation of the depth of Scripture of things we never saw, and it'll go on for eternity. That's what's wrong, I think, with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One call does all. Eat one fruit and you got it all. No, you don't. And, and also, the, the garden, I think, the learning experience was to walk with God and learn Him along with that, not just have a, a, a book full of stuff, a database to draw on. So I think that the Scriptures are very clear to us. We need to see Scripture more broadly than we do. All right. Now, let me talk about the Apostle Paul, one of my favorites. Jesus demonstrated, I think, in his practice, his use of Scripture in a way that was right. But look at what Paul does with the Scriptures, how he sees them broadly, not narrowly. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember, uh, Paul is talking about uh, his rights Genuine, legitimate rights as an apostle, he and Barnabas, to go about and be supported in their ministry so they could have a wife and family and and support them. And then he says, well, that's a very biblical thing. And he goes back to the Old Testament to demonstrate that the servant is worthy of his hire. And he goes back to a text about an ox. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. What does legalism do? Sorry, don't have any oxen, and I don't have any oxen threshing the grain. This text is not for me. No, Paul says the text is teaching us a principle. The principle is the laborer is worthy of its hire. And that applies to those who are ministers of the gospel as well as to others. It's an abiding principle, but I love love what Paul says now. He says, I'm going to be a little sacrilegious. Does God give a flip about oxen? You know what he's saying? Do you think it's really about oxen, that that's what that law was for? Is God's really big on the animal rights stuff, and and so he's going to really take care of that? No, what he's saying is the oxen is, is an analogy. And when we understand how it works with oxen and grain then we can apply that across the board to all kinds of other situations. That's why in the Old Testament it says, pay the laborer the day that you hire him. Don't make him wait. The servant is worthy of his hire. So the Apostle Paul, I think, goes over and over in that realm. And I think we need to learn from him. I think most of us are not seeing nearly as much as we should from Scripture. And we have to be careful. I'm not saying we spiritualize it, and I know there's all kinds of stuff that can go on, but I think we can say to ourselves, you know, I see a principle, a higher principle in this. May I call them camels? And and those camels are more important than gnats. Here's a problem that we can have in higher education theologically. When, uh, when I did my thesis, and I think it's the same thing today, you had to write on something nobody else had written on. Well, folks, <laughs> you start running a little thin on stuff. But my point is, 
It is important to note the details of Scripture, but when your mesh, your filter, gets so fine that you're looking for gnats and you get trampled by a camel, you say to yourself, ooh, there are camels too. There are not only camels too, there are camels that tell us, be careful what you do with this gnat over here, like the Sabbath and a lady getting healed. There's a higher principle to that, and, and we need to understand that. Paul, I think, taught that to us. Okay, I got a bunch of applications, so I better hurry him. All right, one, I'm sorry, uh, Robert, wherever you are, uh, he, uh, he, <laughs> he uh, I was thinking of the other Robert. But the opening, I missed, but I saw the supremacy of God. And, you know, I've always noticed when I preach that oftentimes what gets brought up in the worship time is somehow related to what I'm going to do in the teaching time. I would say this. If God is supreme, then his word must be too. Is that not right? If God is supreme, then surely his word is supreme or should be in our lives. And I don't see how his word can be supreme if we do not see it as sufficient for me in my life and my circumstances. I just don't see how you can make it supreme. Well, I've got to go to the bookstore and buy this book on that subject. If that book points you back to Scripture and the principles of God's Word, hallelujah. If it doesn't, don't waste your money. It's not making God and His Word supreme. Okay, second, Satan attacks at the word. Isn't it interesting? The first temptation is, hath God said? And that question's going on and on today. It has another variation, folks, and that's the second temptation of Jesus. God has said, but a misapplication of what God has said. We must be very, very careful. What has God said? And what are the guiding principles that we need to have in our minds for how that is to be applied and worked out in our lives? We need to broaden. We need to broaden our view of Scripture and broaden our view of the relevance of Scripture to every area of our life. I, I've probably told you this story before, but when we graduated from seminary and were uh, involved uh, full-time eventually at Believer's Chapel, we started looking uh, at houses. A and my dad said to me, you know, you really need to have your ministry kind of focused first, and then where you live is secondary. And I happened to read in Proverbs, prepare your fields and then build a house. It, it, now, doesn't, doesn't that proverb have relevance to all of us in saying, you know, get your foundations down right, then you do this. First things first. Okay. Fourth, we need to realize that our culture is dramatically opposed to truth. And by the way, the culture is called the world in the Bible. The world, the flesh, 
and the devil. The world is saying to us, that isn't the way it ought to be at all. I've been reading through 1 Corinthians because I've concluded that, that, that Paul's grand conclusion, the final conclusion, is chapter 15, longest chapter at the end. That sort of gives us a clue. Why is the resurrection so critical? And so I started thinking about the sections of Corinthians and how those bear on the issue of the resurrection. Well, anyway, that got me back to to 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, where it starts out by saying there are divisions that are amongst you and, and, and so on. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, and so on. Then he gets to this whole area of wisdom and foolishness. Is it not true that in Scripture, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Is that not generally true? I mean, yeah, I know, sometimes the world gets it right, but not often. So if that's true, here's the question I came away with, my camel from one through four. How willing am I to be deemed a fool? How willing am I as a believer? How willing am I to be thought a fool? And the next question is, What are the areas that I'm dealing with today in my life that the world says he is a fool? If he does this, he's a fool. What are those areas? I got to tell you, in many of those areas, the church is buckling its knees and they're taking the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of the word. That's dangerous territory, in my opinion. All right, let's see. Where am I here? Ah, our nation is becoming more and more legalistic. Take, for example, the Supreme Court ruling Roe versus Wade. Back in that day, I read through that. I I don't typically read through Supreme Court decisions, but I read through that decision. The whole argument essentially was, nowhere does the Constitution specifically say a fetus is a human being. And because it doesn't specifically say it, legalistically say it, then it isn't true. That's legalism. I got to tell you, all right, I majored in political science, and I forget that. It didn't help. But (laughs) the reality is the Constitution is the camel. The Constitution is the camel. But the courts are making it the gnats by saying, no, there's got to be this red in and this red in. I got to tell you, I'm going I'm to give you one illustration. I've done it before, but I'm going to give you one illustration of how I believe the Old Testament relates to abortion. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, I'll bet you've read that a thousand times and said, well, okay, we'll put that off in the corner somewhere. That'll never apply to me. What's the principle? What's the principle? What is it that the psalmist would meditate upon and reason as the governing principle in regard to that text and abortion? The mother's milk is God's designed way of supporting and sustaining life. Is that not right? How inappropriate it would be to take the product of a mother goat's womb 
and then boil it, destroy it in the very thing that was meant to sustain it. Doesn't that seem to you to be kind of just a little bit out of sync? So here's the fetus in the womb. God has miraculously designed a process by which a human being is conceived and born. Do you then invade that womb that is designed to protect life and destroy it? My suggestion is, I think the Old Testament's full of that kind of stuff, and we just haven't thought about it because we just buffered it off and said, another day, another time. All right. Eighth, if I'm counting my own numbers right. Meditation. There's a lost art, is there not? How much time do we spend meditating? I say this to my shame because I may spend a lot of time reading. But the question is, how much time is spent meditating upon those things that I've read in God's Word and saying, what's the camel? What's the camel here? And how does that bear upon my life? How does that bear upon the way in which I view God, His supremacy, his glory, his grace, how is it that I see those things applying? The more I read through the Old Testament law, the more grace I see. And the more beauty. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, it says the nations are going to say, what beautiful laws, what, what a beautiful work. And here are Old Testament, or New Testament Christians saying, yuck, to Old Testament revelation. It's beautiful and especially as we meditate upon it. One more thing, uh, interaction. Because the Word of God is so multifaceted, now I'm not saying it's multifaceted in its interpretation. I'm saying it's multifaceted in its implications. Got it? So you can't just make the Bible, you know, I hate those Bible studies. Well, here's what this passage means to me. Leave the Bible study. No, it means something, but what does it mean by implication for me? And, and have you ever noticed in your own experience, you know how diverse the Scripture is because you and I have come to a certain passage of Scripture at a certain time in our life, and we said, wow, that text really spoke to me. A couple years later, you got a new circumstance, and you say, whoa, that text also relates to this, Right? All through our life, we can go back to the same text and we can see more implications because that's the depth of God's Word. I love what we're doing. Jeanette and I have been in various churches over the last couple months. And, and, and there are a lot of good believers, but one of the things that, that I see, again, going back to 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, there are those people who have a singularity it, it, and right now, I'm not caring about whether it's Paul or Apollos or somebody else. The fact is, they say, I've got one person who does my thinking for me, and that's in whom I take my pride. It, and, and Paul then in chapter 3 says, wait a minute, wait a minute, it doesn't work that way. Evangelism is not a one-man operation. Evangelism is a team project. One person sows, another person waters, another person harvests team activity that goes on. When you get to 1 Corinthians 14 and you see the church gathering, what you see is 
an interactive environment in which different people with different gifts and backgrounds, ethnicities, all of that, and they see the scripture through a different lens. And you say, you know, it really helps me in the diversity of our gathering to see the text in a way I wouldn't have seen it. And it helps me value the text even more because I say to myself, wow, here's somebody from the other side of the world. And they see this and they're right. It's helpful. All of that simply say this. I think our view of the sufficiency of Scripture is defective. And I think our culture, sometimes our evangelical environment, actually inclines us to that conclusion. And I would say to you, if God is supreme, his word is supreme, and his word is infinitely relevant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What an amazing thing it is to study and hear your word for so many years and and basically realize we've only skimmed the surface. Help us. Help us prepare us for heaven when we get there and we say, why didn't I see that before? Help us to see the breadth of your word. Help us to look at the details of your word and to see them governed by the bigger, broader camel principles that will help us not to make some legalistic mistakes. In Jesus' name, amen.